Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, My name is David Hartley, and I am joined once again by Lillian Crawford. Hi, Lillian. How are you today? Very good, thank you. It's a pleasure, as always. Always a pleasure. It's always wonderful to be in your company. Um, And we are uh, very, very excited today to welcome another special guest to our podcast, a very special, special guest this time. Uh, Well, all our special guests are special, but there is a particular special uh, element to this guest today. So we are welcoming uh, Alex Gregson to the podcast today. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Hi, David. I'm very, very well. Very happy today. Great. That's good. I can hear the happiness in your voice. It's great. So Alex is a head of audio at 344 Audio, who are a a post-production studio based in Manchester. Um, It's really lovely to have you, particularly because uh, yourself, Alex, and your team at 344 Audio are now officially part of the Autism Through Cinema podcast team, um, because you've taken over as editors for the current batch of episodes that we're currently doing. Um, so yeah, it's very exciting. It's tremendously exciting to have you on board. Um, and obviously it sort of really made sense for us to, uh, invite you onto an episode to, to talk a little bit more about, uh, sound design and sound editing and post-production sound editing, uh, from your perspective, which I, I'm really looking forward to hearing a, a bit more about. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about 344 Audio. Like what do you guys uh, do over there? What does a typical day look like? Uh, what, is, what do you sort of like specialize in, I suppose? A tip, well, a typical day, every day is completely different, but yeah. uh, <laughs> we sort of do a little bit more than just post-production now. So we have sort of three areas of the business. The post-production services for film and TV is, is the largest part, yeah. but we also, um, we actually run a course for people who want to learn sound design for film and TV. Oh, excellent. Um, and that, that course has become quite popular. So that's become quite a big part of what we do. Um, and then the final thing that we do is we sell sound effects online for other sound designers to use in their projects as well. Oh, excellent. I'm just now thinking, oh, can I add to a sound effects library by clicking something or pressing something <laughs> in my room? No, I won't do that. Um, uh, <laughs> great. Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's interesting. So there's a lot, so there's a, not only the production side of it, but there's also the kind of training aspect of it, um, which is really fascinating. That's really, that's was a, a kind of really wonderful thing to do. So uh, I also wanted to ask that you've been you have been uh, fairly recently diagnosed as autistic, as far as I understand. Um, how was that process for you? And and has anything as much changed for you in the kind of post diagnosis world? Um, I think the the process of doing it, at least in the UK, because I'm sure there's listeners in other countries as well. Mm. 
in in the UK, obviously, we get it under the National Health Service, so it, it's included in our um, sort of um, our social uh, healthcare system. And the way it, the way it works, at least at the moment, and the way it was for me, is you um, you initially approach your GP with um, the idea that you think you might have autism. Uh, you know, doesn't really matter how you found that out, but you just approach them with that idea. They'll then have a chat with you and and ask some questions in regards to the actual diagno- diagnostic sort of material. Um, mm. I think I don't know if it's in the DSM book, but it's it's somewhere that they get yeah. that information from. And then if they deem it to be likely that you have autism, they'll then pass you on to a specialist in your local area. So there'll be a clinic in every sort of region of the mm. UK, I imagine. And um, there's one quite local to here. So the problem, I think one of the problems that exists at the moment with that system is that once you get past the GP stage, there's quite a long time to wait between Mm. that stage and actually hearing anything more. They can't tell you a timeline, which I think is quite strange given that the the individual that's likely to be involved in this diagnosis process is probably going to find that extremely stressful. Mm. The way that I dealt with that is I I just said to myself, look, don't even set an expectation for this because it's just going to stress you out. Just mm. let it exist and don't don't mess with it. And that's what I did. I just sort of let. I got. I got. I spoke to the GP. They sent it off, and then I just forgot about it until they got back to me. But the problem is, they then follow up with you, like you know, at some random time, three or four months into the future after that, with a letter that doesn't even give you any further clarification. It just says, "Yeah, we have received your um, application. We can't tell you when we can we can um, go any further. And if you want to complain, here's a number, which I thought was really strange. And then after that, the finally got in touch with me directly from the clinic via text, uh, weirdly, and said, you know, we've got an appointment coming up. Would you like to take it? So I took that appointment. And that's the first stage out of three stages. So I I know the GP is kind of its own stage, but there's three stages once you reach the specialist to then get a diagnosis because they have to check that it's actually autism. I I totally understand it from their perspective. They've got to go through rigorous testing um, because I guess in a sense, it also gives you certain, um, I don't want to say benefits, but it gives you certain things that you can then get like for example you can get a disabled badge for a parking space and things yeah. like that so they have to make sure that you, you follow the right procedure to get that diagnosis um so the first stage is they talk about i guess general symptoms then they start to go into like your childhood in the second one yeah. and then in the third one they start to do exercises with you and like get you to look at pictures and analyze them and stories and tell them what you you know sort of interpret from that story what what i found really interesting was in the third stage when i sat down and i, I looked at this story it was it was a story about this boy and he was like in a dream world floating through space or something on some books or something like that and um <laughs> they was they said to me said describe what's happening in the story and my answer to that question was mainly things around the colors the shapes the architecture and things like that where as the people interviewing me were more focused on the the way the boy feels and what his journey right. is on and so on and so forth and i think things like that help sort of reclarifying your own mind the differences that that you might um you might mm. have versus i guess the uh, the average person I, I don't think there's such a word as normal but the average mm. i guess the average person and then after that they get back to you very quickly and give you a diagnosis so um it was it was quite a long process but i think it was the right the right way i just think they need to look at that middle section between gp and autism center yeah. that's where i think it's a little bit stressful probably for maybe some 
people who um, can't do what I did and just forget about it. Yeah. And they might need it for some other reason. They might need to get access to certain benefits. They, they might not. Some people who have autism can't even like cook for themselves yeah. and things like that. And they might need to get that access. So for someone in that position, I imagine it's extremely stressful. But after the, the fact, um, after getting the diagnosis, I think it was a bit of a relief for me because I've always um, I've always had a have an instinct or a feeling that I'm I guess different to other people and um, I've never really got like the reciprocate reciprocal what's the word reciprocal understanding from anyone else so mm. for someone to sit and assess it and then put some label on it just helped me in my mind understand right well that's just who I am and that's okay you know okay. Um, it's just a part of a wider personality um, so yeah, it's good. And um, I'm gen generally quite open with people about it. I think there's, I've had a, a few odd reactions, the odd, you know, sometimes where people just don't understand it and they sort of treat you differently, maybe, or something yeah. like that, which is a bit weird. But other than that, it's it's been totally fine. I've been actually a lot happier because I feel like I can be myself without like having to explain myself, yeah. you know? So, yeah. That's, that's really good. The long, the long answer to your question. No, no, that's good. It's really useful. It's also so useful to sort of break down that diagnostic process. I think it is still quite uh, uh, mysterious to people who don't have to go through it, right? And and I've known a, a few friends recently who have gone through it the uh, similar process, and it's taken a long time, and they've had to wait a long time, and and you know, sort of getting wound up about having to wait for so long. And also that there's a particular friend of mine um, who I won't name, but a particular friend who was quite baffled by that kind of storytelling section of the testing yeah. process who found that to be quite a, a a baffling thing to be put through in many ways and and I remember her messaging me and saying what is this why am I being asked this you know I'm a fully grown adult why am I being shown these weird little like children's stories whatever um so it's really interesting and uh, um it makes me glad, it makes me glad that there is a uh, you know a process that that it's sort of a well worn process that, that it's gone through and lots more people are now getting diagnosed as autistic, especially adults, which is which is really great. Um, but yeah, there are maybe some details within that process mm. that need to be looked at. I don't know. Was it kind of similar for yeah. you, Lillian? Is that kind of the yeah the, the process? Uh, well, through? I mean, my diagnostic process took a very long time. I mean, we're, we're talking almost two decades. Um, wow. so, I mean, well. It's it's very complicated with how I was diagnosed. Yeah. Sort of, how I sort of understand my diagnosis was very complicated. I mean, I sort of have pieces of paper now that I like can sort of actually point out and talk to. But yeah, in terms of waiting times, oh my God, yes. <laughs> um, so very much empathise with that. I was just thinking when you were talking about the storytelling aspects, I remember always finding that quite baffling as well. I wonder if you could actually just show like, some film clips and see how people interpret oh, yeah. them because we obviously talk about this a lot um and how we how we watch films differently and how we interpret different things and i think that i wonder um i mean in the context of the film we're going to be talking about today and a lot of the films that we talk about as well is is how we look at cinema from this very sort of um in this film in particular like it's very much a film that's talked about and looked at in a very technical way yeah, which is yeah, very interesting yeah. to me I don't know. I want. I wonder if I if I learnt to look beyond those kinds of things, or if I've always been able to. I don't really know. It's difficult to sort of retrospectively mm. look at yourself in in these ways. Um, but yeah, our experience of these things is is so different, and it can help with knowing that you need a diagnosis in the first place. I mean, it was something that for me, 
I don't, I don't know. You see, you're also talking, Alex, about openness about it and how people respond to it. And that's something that's, that's changed a lot for me. And Autism Free Cinema as a project has really helped me to be more open about and come to understand. Um, because, yeah, people think that you're not normal and you're weird. And then you tell them you're autistic and they're like, you're too normal to be autistic. And it's, it's, it's Oh it's, yeah, exactly. That that's a classic on. one. <laughs> so, <it's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I yeah, I've had all sorts of strange reactions, you know. Like, see, to me, I'm I'm sort of very individualistic in my thinking. Like, I don't think of myself because I've got autism, I don't think of myself as in a particular group. I just think of myself as having some condition or some personality traits that people class as a condition. But what's strange is it, it kind of puts you into that group in some people's perspective. So for example, um i'm trying to think like i've had the the subtle reactions i've had are like when you tell someone and then the like picture the voice goes up it's like they're now talking to some like a someone who's do you know what i mean who's like yeah. not fully there yeah. um which was a little bit weird that's only happened a few times and then the most extreme reaction i got was i told somebody about it and um and they were like Oh yeah, I I actually um deal with autistic kids in my in my job. I work in social care and I deal with autistic kids. And like, does that mean that you get like really angry all the time and blah blah? blah. I'm like, they're children. Like, <laughs> just because they have the same condition doesn't mean that I now have all of the traits of a child who has that sure. condition. Yeah, it's so Absolutely. bizarre the 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 way people see things. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I, well, that gets to a lot of it. I think that most conceptions of autism are based around children rather than oh yeah, adults. Um, yeah particularly hugely. for people who who have been diagnosed in adulthood um like yourself it's a, it's a completely different framework and obviously for women that tends to be the case because most women get diagnosed in uh adulthood so well yeah. more, more yeah. do so yeah. it's uh it's tricky but yeah it's good i hope in the end once as you yeah. say it's nice oh to, yeah no, it's, it's nice to understand it. And I think that um, understanding it in relation to the things that we like and that we explore, so in our case, film or sound, music, these kinds of things can really can really help and explain why when I sit down and talk to someone about a film and I'll say, God, I hated that. It was awful. And they're like, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> That's a masterpiece. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, let's have a look at why my brain might be interpreting this in a different mm -hmm. way to you. Um, and it makes you feel less like you're wrong. Yeah. Both of you could be right. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think that's a very elegant way of putting it. Yeah. And, and just on that, actually, Alex, how do you, do you find that your autism sort of factors into the, your your work in, as a sound designer in any mm. ways? Do you find that uh, is kind of a, a useful trait to have, or or I don't know? How does it? Do you sort of yeah. connect it in that way? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I've been obsessed with sound since I was probably like 12 or 13 years old right. so yeah it definitely definitely factors into um into my work i think it's the analytical and the need for the why with everything you right. know it's, instead mm -hmm. of just for example you're searching for sound effects for a, a certain um sound effects cue you've got it might be a bird or an animal you could arguably just go to a sound effects library and go, well, that's the bird. So therefore it's called, it's a crow. So I'm going to select that crow sound and I'm just going to put it into the film. Yeah. Whereas I analyze, I'm not saying it's just me that does this, but 
I think this kind of is how I see it coming into my work. I like analyze that sound and think, why that crow sound and not this one? What right. is it about? Is it the pitch? Is it the is it the distance? Is it the way it feels? You know, not all of the sounds are re- uh, created equally. So mm. it's the having that deeper why behind everything. And I think that's true for a lot of filmmakers uh, generally. Like if you look at a director, they're always searching, mm. not searching for the why, but telling you the why you know telling you what the motivation is as an actor or or whatever it might be or telling the cinematographer to to um light it and shoot it in a certain way to make it feel you know the way mm. that they want it to feel so it's that mm. having that analytical thing and it's also being able to um reevaluate a problem over and over and over and over again and right. detach emotion from it right because okay. obviously the film industry is based on rejection you know, it's all yeah. about that's both in securing jobs, but it's also in doing the job, you know, delivering a mix to a client or, you know, as an actor doing a audition. And then that client's going to feed back and that feedback might just be, it's not for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm able to detach my emotions from that and just see it logically and think, okay, they're the director. They're probably right. I'm going to flip this. Right. And I can keep doing that quite a few times. So right. sometimes I'll, um, you know, look at a scene, completely transform it, send it back, and it, it's still not right. And then I can just do keep going through that process and reevaluate it over and over and over again. And I think that's just being able to, like I said, detach emotion and focus on things logically and analytically. Yeah, that's mm. really interesting, actually. It's really fascinating. And it does make me think of like the film industry as a as a as a medium of 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 great detail, you know, and everybody has to play their part in finding those specific and particular details, depending on what it is that they're doing within the film that is being constructed with the director sort of seeing, overseeing all of that. It's really, it's really interesting. It's really fascinating. Right. Well, let's, let's, um, let's turn our attention then to the, to the film that you, that you've uh, suggested for us to watch um, today. So this is a, so the film that we're looking at is The Revenant. um, Yes. By, which is the sixth film by Alejandro González Iñárritu, uh, and it was released in 2015. I wonder if you... Well, actually, what I'll do is I've, I've written a little summary of the of the plot of the film, just in case people who are listening to this I haven't seen it or haven't seen it for a while. Um, so I'll quickly summarise that, and then I'll turn to you, Alex, and if you want to just talk a little bit about the sound design of the film, and then we'll, we'll get really get into it. Okay, so the film itself, uh, it tells the story of Hugh Glass, uh, and Hugh Glass was a, a real-life... Um, sort of legendary fur trapper and mountain man uh, in 1820s America in what is now, I think, Dakota, one of the Dakotas, North or South Dakota, one of those, or maybe both. Um, So the real Hugh Glass was famous for being, he was mauled by a grizzly bear and then was robbed and left for dead by his companions. But he he became a legend because he survived the attack and made this kind of 200-mile survival trip downriver to a fort um, where he was kind of rescued and then brought back to health. And then he went and c- caught up with his the people who left him, um, Bridges and Fitzgerald. He caught up with them. And then in the legend, he sort of forgives them. Um, this is what the story is about. So this guy was real and it was this kind of like real uh, story that was passed down through generations. Uh, the film is kind of based on that. It's based on a book which is based on the legend. And the film is uh, sort of constructed around the same story, but there's some other bits added in there as well. So the film has a bit of a meteor uh, revenge plot in there as well. And there's uh, a little bit more other other bits and pieces of things that are happening as well. So the film stars Leo DiCaprio. He plays Glass. Uh, It was a performance that earned DiCaprio his first 
Oscar, his first Academy Award for Best Actor. Um, but in the film, they've made this other sort of kind of quite key plot invention where they have where Hugo Glass, Hugh Glass, sorry, has a um, a son called Hawk, played by Forrest Goodluck, who is a kind of half pawnee uh, uh, Native American, and uh, sort of they're out and about in the wilds of America and they're hunting for furs, getting attacked uh, by the the local Native Americans. And then there's the bear attack happens. And in the course of being abandoned, the character Fitzgerald, who is played by Tom Hardy, he murders uh, Glass's son, Hawk. So this actually, this film actually becomes a bit more of a tale of survival and then vengeance as uh, DiCaprio's Glass makes his way back to hunt out Fitzgerald. So yeah, so that's kind of what, what the film's about and, and, and sort of how it differs from the legend that it's based on. But we are looking at this pre- predominantly through the uh, through the specifics of the sound design. So, I, I, Alex, if you wouldn't mind, um, tell us what, what what do you make of the sound design of this film? Why do you find it uh, particularly interesting? Um, yeah, over to you. So there's two there's two things about this film that um, are quite interesting. I guess one one of them that sort of initially caught my attention was um, one of the sound designers, Martin Hernandez. I think mm. that's how you pronounce his second name. He did a talk for Avid, who um, are the people who make the software that we use in Sound Pro Tools. And at this talk, he talked about how he completely broke the rules of how you typically edit sound effects in a film like this. Right. Um, with being that it was produced by um sa- you know south and central american people um i'm assuming martin hernandez also is that i think he's from mexico mm. um he he has a completely different way of doing things versus the americans just from a technical standpoint and one of the things he talks about in this in this video is that when he edits his his ambiences because in a, in a film none of the ambience comes from the location really unless it's been recorded completely separately from the shoot um but martin hernandez uh, laid in very complex ambiences you know given that this is obviously a historical piece set in south dakota there's tons of wildlife and a lot of manipulation with that which we'll get on to later but what what's interesting about how he approached it is typically say there's a five minute scene say like the the scene where leonardo Di- dicaprio gets mauled by the bear mm. typically what you would do is you'd lay layers of background sound effects to fill the ambience like you might have a wind a rumble some leaves moving around some some sort of snow through the wind maybe some birds etc and some icy water and you'd layer all these separate sounds up and then you can mix them higher or lower to give different sort of emotional reactions in the scene but something that um, martin hernandez did is every time the camera caught he'd cut the ambiences differently which is not really typically how we do things at least in the western world with ambiences we normally um, have them consistent through the scene and then the person who mixes the film might bring things up and down if needed this guy just cut it completely based on how far away the object was so say there was a bird he would get this he would get a recording of the bird close up a recording of the bird far away and then a recording really far away and then he'd cut between those on all of the camera cuts which is something that i've not seen done at a professional level very often now, when he took that to the mixer in LA, apparently the mixer freaked out. So the guy doing the final mix, he received this these uh, background sound effects and he just went completely nuts in the studio and was like, what the hell is this? You know, we've got we're on this mix schedule and you've brought me this bloody track lay with all these, you know, sounds edited on perspectives. What do you expect me to do with this? So um, Martin <laughs> Hernandez just said that was what the vision of the film was for Alejandro. That, that's what we decided to do. And then the mixer walked out and quit. 
Oh, really? <laughs> so that, that's the first <laughs> thing that's interesting, just from the way he approached it, technically right. speaking. Interesting. But in terms of the result, you know, I think what's fascinating about it, and it probably comes a lot from that technical approach of cutting things constantly back and forth all the time, is that um, the wildlife and, and the world of South Dakota becomes a character in the story. So mm. it's almost like the ambiences of the score in some sections like they rise and fall with the the emotion that's intended for the audience um so that happens literally throughout the whole film and there's loads of examples of it is there anything like that out of interest david did you pick up any of that watching it for when you were just watch, focusing on sound well well yeah for, i mean certainly for me like um re-watching this film with a particular focus on sound design, and I will confess that like that my knowledge of sound design is is very limited. Like I I I I I don't really know much about any of this at all. But watching this film, and I very deliberately watched this film with my headphones in, you know, with the sound quite high up, so that I could really concentrate on the sounds. And it and it was almost revelatory in a way because I was really hearing, as you say, all of the um the the sounds of the the nature and the of the wildlife in particular around them i mean the, the vast majority of this film is set in the in the in the wilds of south dakota and it's just like and i was n noting these down you know i was like oh the scrape of bark the drops of rain the, you know the creak of ice and hearing them and in my head sort of hearing them far back and in the front and all around me and it was a kind of like yeah this kind of wonderfully rich soundscape now and whether I noticed it to the level of like, as you're saying, you know, each, especially in like a scene like the bear attack, each cut having different mix and so on and so forth. Like I, I, I don't have the technical knowledge for that, but certainly I could hear the the details that were being picked out of the different environmental sounds. I think that did make make it a really rich sonic experience, mm -hmm. and it was a fascinating way of watching the film for me. I guess what's what's interesting about what you just said when you were talking about all these specific things like the the raindrops on snow and bark and everything, just remember that every single second of that film, the sound is an intentional decision. Mm. None of it's just by chance. This is a common misconception. Like people watch film and they just go, Oh well, well, yeah, that's set in um that's set in the forest or that's set in so therefore you'd hear this. No, that's what the director wants you to hear. Yeah. So that the people working on that soundtrack, there would have been multiple sound effects editors, people who've gone out there and recorded a lot of these sounds, probably some of it in the real environment. You know, every second of that that you're hearing was intentional and it's gone through multiple people. You know, it started off with the director talking to the sound designer, sound effects editors going in and finding those sounds and the field recorders capturing them. Then when it's gone to the mix, and even in the mix, they've taken it a step further. Okay, bring out the, you know, turn down those raindrops on the ice at this moment because I want us to focus on the dialogue. Mm -hmm. All right, now bring them back or let's change to this sound. So sometimes what you see isn't always what you hear as well. You see you see one thing, but you hear something different. Yeah. Or you hear everything that's there for a moment, and then they dip it out intentionally to make you focus on a different sort of narrative shift. So, yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, just as an example, right in the opening, there's like a, a sort of flowing creek that happens, and you just start to hear all of this like distant wildlife, and it's quite horrifying. It's not... It's almost like they've chosen the most horrifying animals to play back hmm. in the start just to prepare you for what's to come. You know what I mean? Yeah, Instead yeah. of going, oh, we could play, you know, some really positive sounding birds and a nice yeah. babbling brook. They've played like the really, you know, creepy North American animals in the background just to prepare you for the tone of the film. So 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, there's a real poetics to it. I mean, I was reading the screenplay again by um, Mark L. Smith and by Inuritu, and that opening, it's a whole page, and it's all description of sound, and it's incredible. And then you, um, I also remember, because I remember reading the, the novel before the film came out, and it's, again, uh, Michael Punker's book is also a lot of descriptions. And then the poem, um, the poem that the book's based on from 1915 by uh, John G. Neihardt, uh, Song of Philip Glass, Philip Glass, Hugh Glass. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, again, it's like written in couplets. And the whole thing is just so beautifully written to create a sense of sound within this landscape. Right. Um, so the way it's written is like someone setting down the the notes for the beginning of some sort of symphonic work and it makes me think of like um some of my favorite pieces of classical music by um Rautavara uh, the Finnish composer is um Cantus Arcticus which is like most of the music is from birdsong um and that's it's just building up to this incredible soundscape as you say that opening sequence has a tension to it because if you listen really carefully you can hear like there's like screams almost and sort of distressing mm-hmm. sounds amongst that what what you also described Alex as being potentially quite quite soothing and that's that's really how the film succeeds for me is is on a sonic level it's like if I close my eyes and listen um it's just absolutely gorgeous and it's it's infuriating when that's disturbed I mean there are other films that I can think of where that's the case. Probably the best example I thought of was um, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which starts mm-hmm. off very quiet. And then that first gunshot happens. And I remember being, seeing it in IMAX and like jumping out of my skin because it was just so incredibly loud and the way it just sort of cuts across um, the, the, the very calm soundscape that's already been created. Uh, so yeah, I just, I just found that totally overwhelming in those opening scenes and I remember first seeing this film when it came out in 2015 which is what eight years ago which is crazy to think um (laughs) and I just remember being totally overwhelmed by it um I just I just got found that level of that that kind of sound just completely too much I mean I've talked a lot on this podcast about um this 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 screening that sort of started me wanting to do that work on relaxed screenings and and working out how we can change sound levels in cinemas to try to make it more uh, acceptable or um, not not as distressing for neurodivergent people um, was was a film called River, which was a documentary about rivers, which you'd think would be totally tranquil and lovely, and it was just so overwhelming in the way it was shot and the way the sound was edited and mixed, and it was. Um, it was a totally inappropriate choice for a relaxed screening. So you'd think a film like The Revenant, which is very much sort of set in nature, would would have a similar soothing effect. But actually, sometimes that intensity of sound for me can be far too much because I have such a heightened level mm. of sensitivity. Um, I mean, you said, David, about like listening with headphones, and I made sure I did that when rewatching it. And I did, <laughs> I confess, I did have to keep it quite low at times right. because it is it's too, particularly in those those violent moments um the scene yeah. with the bear and you know it, there's a real sense of reality and realism and grittiness and it's very visceral those sounds and it's um it's so interesting hearing you talk about um how those those perspectives are created because you really get a sense of that it doesn't feel like you've just taken a sound that was at a high level and then sort of lowered it it's it's very much you get that sense of distance 
uh, which I think is is really incredible. It's interesting what you said. There's a few things in there that I want to pick up on. So, yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, the script almost being like an orchestra. Mm. And the way the film is mixed is actually like an orchestra as well, because it's very um, it's very much based on dynamics, the, the whole thing. So it's, if you, I mean, it's a tool that's used in, in a lot of films, but in this film, there's a distinct sort of rise and fall throughout in the, in the sound, in ambiences specifically. So for example, you mentioned the bear scene. That's something I was going to talk about. I mean, that scene is incredible. Like how realistic it sounds and looks is just yeah. unbelievable. But um, that has some of the loudest dynamics in the entire film. Mm. So it, it has those dynamics intentionally to create discomfort. So they've they've made it uh, so loud in that moment by making the surrounding scenes quieter so that your brain perceives that sound to be louder. So the way that your brain interprets sound and, and levels is that you have two different parts of your hearing. You have your biological hearing, and then you have what I call your hearing intelligence, which is when your brain perceives the electric signal that goes from the ear to, to the brain, and then it interprets that as sound. Now, I don't know exactly how that works for people with autism, but I'm assuming there's mm. some something there in that connection yeah. that gives us that sensitivity. It's not actually the ear, it's the brain. Yeah. And um, and that's why we feel that way. But that's what they're, they're not necessarily playing on it for artistic people, but they're playing on it for people who don't have that sensitivity. Yeah, right. So they push it that far that someone who doesn't have maybe the sensitivity sensitivity we have mm -hmm. would feel yeah. like we might feel sometimes in a way mm. so it's quite interesting how they, how they achieve it it's fascinating isn't it it's like it's, incredible. it's using yeah. film as a as a autist it's like film being autistic and bringing yeah. it oh i don't know quite i'm yeah. trying to articulate <laughs> that but you know what you mean it's no like i know what you mean because that's that's what i'm so interested in it's like well we have to try to and it's okay for me to say that this film is too there's too yeah. much sound for me yeah. it's like um it's why I found Oppenheimer just utterly unwatchable because yeah. I saw it in IMAX Same. and it was yeah. like, bloody hell, how much sound does there need to be at all times? Yeah. And I know that, and it's constantly how the cinematic experience is described. I know that Nolan's always banging on about like raising Dolby 7 to Dolby 8 or whatever. And I'm like, I don't want that. It's too <laughs> loud. It's too loud. I can't cope with it. Um and it does, it detracts from other stuff. It's like, I, I I will need to reassess Oppenheimer when I can watch it with a remote control in my hand so I can right. turn it down. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this that's is a very a big... badly, badly mixed film anyway, because the score is, is just yeah. dominating everything. Yeah, sorry. This is, this is a big problem that exists. This, is, this was the other thing I was going to get onto based on what you said before. This is a big problem that currently exists in the film world. And it's it's bad for not just people who have hearing sensitivity, but it's bad for everyone. Because what, what's happening, Christopher Nolan is setting a very dangerous trend for our craft um, in that what he's effectively doing is two things. He's getting all of the people who work on the sound to mix it louder, but he's also making it so that he has to use all of the sound that's captured on set in terms of the dialogue. Like he won't ever re-record a line. He has to piece it together from all these little bits of, you know, that have happened throughout the film because he believes that if it's recorded after the fact in the process we call ADR, that it's not good enough. Now, I agree that you should try and avoid re-recording lines, but if you're just doing it because you can, like, you, you know, you can for, you can, you've got the money to pay someone to piece it together, what then happens is you end up with dialogue that you can't hear. Mm. So he's he's mixing the music too loud, the sound effects too loud. The dialogue's 
already roughly recorded because they've had some issues on set and they've kept it. But then not only that, he's, he's saying to the cinemas, if you don't play my film at this level, I'm going to pull it from your cinema chain. Mm-hmm. So then that puts pressure onto the cinema to play it louder. So now you yeah. go watch it. The music is way louder than what it what was intended by the sound people working on it. The dialogue's lower, and then it's louder generally in the cinema than the cinema safety standards say it should be. So therefore, you you go in, don't enjoy the film, leave a little bit angry, but Christopher Mm -hmm. Nolan gets away with it because he still sells Mm -hmm. all the tickets. So he's creating a dangerous trend because what's going to now happen as a result of that if it keeps going and going when someone creates like a lawsuit against one of these cinemas saying I lost, you know, blah, 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 hearing in one of these screenings, they're going to have to do something about it. And the, what I fear is what they're going to do is create a loudness standard for cinema, right. which sounds good initially because it could be good for people like autistic people, but it's actually not. Because if you have a loudness standard, it means that all the films have to be that. You can't have a quieter film. You can't have a softer film with like more dynamics. You can't have a louder film. You've just got to have what the standard is. And that will completely ruin the sound experience in cinemas. And that's one of the things that's quite controversial that's happening in our industry at the moment. And it's really only Christopher Nolan that's causing this issue because he's putting pressure upon all these people to do it his way even though it's been established and agreed on for a very long time, you know, the way that most people are happy for it to be. So this has resulted in some cinemas turning their Dolby level down permanently so that because his film's louder, right, bring it down, and then everyone else's film's just going to be quieter, which also ruins the experience for people. (laughs) So you can't really win. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) That's so interesting. I mean, because a lot of the discussions that I had before you do a relaxed screening are around what the sound level is going to be for the film. And I sort of go through a film when we're putting it on and write down all the points at which, as you said, like the bear scene here would, 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 would raise a red flag with me. And I'd want to check that in the cinema to see what it sounds like and see if we need to lower it, which is not great because I'm not an expert. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a tricky thing and it's a difficult balance to get right. What we normally do is just lower the whole level of the whole film, but it doesn't always work like that. And it can be completely different. So the last relaxed screening I did was Fantasia. And what I found was, was that classical music is normally fine for people because it has mm-hmm. a, because it's so harmonious rather than like a gunshot, which is really loud, and really a distressing sound. And it's, it's a, it's a sort of a nasty sound, shall we say, um, by contrast to something that's very um, sort of melodic. Uh, it can create different levels of distress. So it's 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 a, it's a really tricky one. It's like um, the Re- the Revenant's a really good example, I think, of of where the score is used so brilliantly um, yeah. because it's by Ryoichi Sakamoto, who tragically died earlier this year. Um, he's one of the greatest film composers ever, and his music here is so sparse. It's it's yeah. like almost completely not there. And the way it rises and falls is just gorgeous. And he's working with um, Alvin Otto on, on, on that score, the German electronic musician. And that that collaboration, I think, really works with the imagery that Lebetsky is creating for this film, which we will probably also talk about. Um, but those landscapes, you really gain a sense of the scale from, yeah. from, from that music. Um, they also, I mean, they were ineligible for the Oscar because they had too much going on in the score 
Uh, a lot of the music is also taken from a piece called Become Ocean by John Luther Adams, which won the Pulitzer in 2014, which is like, I think it's about 50 minutes long. And it's just like a huge sort of rise and fall of the ocean. Um, so it's absolutely perfect for, for use in this film. Um, and it's one of my favourite pieces. And I absolutely love the way that it sort of makes me feel like I'm surrounded by nature and by that sound. Yeah. And it, it sort of creates a blanket through the film. It makes those those sounds, those distressing sounds, um, bearable. It sort of softens them. Mm. In the, in yeah. re, I found re-watching it. So yeah, I, I think that the way that music sort of works with the sound design in this film is really, it's it's great strength. Yeah, I, I think in, and certainly in contrast to Oppenheimer, as we were just saying, but like, yeah, I completely agree with you that the score, I don't think I really, really noticed the score first time around of watching this film, but I probably wasn't thinking about that sort of thing back then. But this mm-hmm. time it really, it came through. And I think it's exactly that reason. It's that contrast it was giving us between the 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 pretty, the, you know, fairly horrifying action scenes that take place um especially the bear attack but also the 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 the, the uh, fights between the um native americans and the trappers and there's a few of those kind of scuffles and the fight between tom hardy's character fitzgerald mm-hmm. and uh, glass at the end where they're kind of he's chopping his fingers off and all sorts of stuff is going on you know it's a very brutal and bloody film that's very violent um but that score just gives you that just gives you that moment to breathe and it and it mm-hmm. and it has that sense I mean, breath sounds of breath is is a is a key element, I think, of this mm-hmm. of the whole sound design. But it gives you that it does sound a bit like breathing. It almost sounds like the mountains are breathing or the trees are breathing, as well as glass as he's as he's kind of recovering and making his way back. It it gives that kind of those moments for us to just go, you know, and just breathe out and breathe in again. Um, combined with the cinematography of the the sweeping landscapes and the slightly more magic magic realist bits where there's like people hovering in the air and um and mm-hmm. you know and the uh, the the comet that comes over at one point and all that sort of thing yeah the score is beautifully integrated and not just not just there as a score it sort of comes in and out and works with the atmospheric sounds and it and it and it it doesn't it never dominates but it's there and you and you kind of uh, feel it yeah it's a real masterclass i think of, of how to use this of a score really it's interesting um as well something you said before lillian about um about the sounds that are more distressing to people and i was just thinking as you were talking you saying that when the orchestra ebbs and flows it's less stressful because it's more harmonious I actually think there's potentially a measurable aspect to that. You know, you know, because you were talking about how to how to um, make screenings less harsh for for people who are yeah. sensitive to sound. It's not necessarily just that the sounds are more harmonious. It's that the more sustained and mm-hmm. softer in the nature. So, yeah. for example, you can have. Um, in an orchestra you could have every instrument playing at once in a very loud sound but it's it's going to feel softer because it's what we call um less transient so mm-hmm. it's the transient sounds that um i think are what what trigger the um the sensitivity so you know for example um i think a lot of people who have sort of um over stimulation to sound are bothered by things like mouth noises chewing oh, um, yeah. clicky sounds that's transient material so it's it's sound it's sounds that have a very harsh peak at the start of them so uh, if you think of an orchestra there's not many sounds in the orchestra that have that apart from really heavy crash cymbals or you know or things like that whereas in 
a film soundtrack, there's loads of stuff like that. Yeah. Explosions, mm-hmm. gunshots, loud footsteps, sword clashes, etc. So that's the material that that you can control to to mm-hmm. sort of soften it and make it more appealing. There will actually be a way to do that, like in an automated process. Not fully automated, but there'd be a way to set up a, a sort of processing chain where it would allow it would make quite a significant difference to the overall mix of the film. And then if you made some manual uh, changes at certain moments of extreme loudness, it would actually go a really long way in in making it sort of trigger less of a response in the hearing intelligence part of hearing. Cause as it, cause it, if it hit, when it hits your ear, there's less transient material for your ear to react to and therefore less of a extreme electrical pulse sent mm. to the brain. And therefore the part of the brain that in that um, interprets that is less, I'm trying to think less fired off, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's less yeah. intense. So there's, there's, there's definitely a way to do it. Um, it just, it requires like a mixture of a, mm. of a preset processing chain uh, for the yeah. audio and this can be done even just with the final file um and a chain for the audio plus some very minor level adjustments that can be done in the actual file though not in the screening like yeah. there's a way to do, there is a way to do it it's almost as if there's the, the, in the utopian world we 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 deliver two versions of the file yeah. you know there's yeah. the, the 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 file that is you just put on at the cinemas and then there's the the one for people who are sensitive to sound, you know, and, and we could do it. It yeah. could be done a hundred percent. They yeah. already, they already produce for, um, well, you know, for hard of hearing people, the, the kind of opposite thing, don't they? The way they right. like, you know, um, audio description mixes. So mm. they could do, um, I don't know what you would call it, but sound sensitive mixes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, there's like the induction loops, aren't there? That people yeah. can have uh, earpieces, or, or the um, they could, their hearing aids can connect to the induction loop that's around the cinema that allows the sound to be adjusted in that way. I, I was just wondering why you were saying that because um, I think this is really interesting because, uh, as I mentioned, it's like I find that when I watch a film on my TV or my laptop and I can control the sound levels, that that. I like having that element of control. Like that's that's something that I like. I like being able to to control things. Whereas if I go to the cinema and I watch a film, I'm out of control, and that that in itself, that experience in itself, can be distressing. And I want, I, I suppose, I wonder, Alex, if that for you in your in your job when you're editing sound, if that's something that that you find, do you derive a sort of a, a pleasure from? Um, by contrast, to be to that sense of sort of being out of control of of, of what can be distressing sound um yeah i actually do that's that's a really good question it's something i teach to the students as well so mixing film is unlike mixing any other type of material um it's completely different to mixing everything from podcasts to live sound when there's a you know a band on mixing an album for a musician it's a completely different craft completely different to game audio the reason being it's the only craft where the mix is linear and this is specifically for cinema it's even different from tv broadcasts that has to meet a loudness standard mm. cinema is the only format or film festivals where you get to mix a linear piece of material based on your own what i call subject subjective perception Mm -hmm. so your skill as a mixer is actually kind of like an artist with a paintbrush because there's no rule 
as long as you calibrate your speakers, so you set your speakers to a set level, you are then just judging your mix subjectively based on your own experience and, and choices and the director's notes. So I love that that idea that you can actually um you can drive the experience through the mix. And it's like in the Revenant, they do that quite a lot where they, like I said, they bring sounds down. Even though you can see things still happening, they turn them down anyway. And these bits like around that bear attack where they're bringing sound down and and then they're bringing it up on the bear attack and then bring it down again. Mm -hmm. And that that's that's the the sort of part of it that the audience doesn't necessarily know that you're doing, but they they they, they feel something different. Um, and there's a lot of it. There's a lot of examples of this in in film sound that are not just about levels. Like for example, in um, the film Paranormal Activity, they did um, you know subsonic sounds in that and. Um, that then gives people an, a discomfort that they can't explain. Um, you don't hear the sound. You don't even necessarily feel it, but your body knows it's there. And therefore, they have a sort of a four-dimensional experience almost. Mm. It's not just now sound and picture. It's sound, picture, and physical. Yeah. So therefore, they leave the cinema. And when they did interviews with people, people would say, I don't know why this film felt different. Why did it? I don't know why I felt so scared, but I just did. You know, because yeah. I, know... I had that exact experience with that. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I couldn't sleep that night. I watched that film, and I'm not—I mean, I'm not great with horror films anyway. I do—I do sort of find them quite intense, but like that film in particular, and I wonder if that's part of the explanation of why that that had such an effect on me. I was not aware of this sub sound thing. I feel a little bit manipulated, actually. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I was going to talk about that kind of idea of manipulation because it's something that I increasingly find myself frustrated by by cinema. And I wonder if this is just an autistic thing, um, which is like the extent to which I feel like I'm sort of being carried by something or driven to to feel a certain way. And you really get that from music and sound effects. And that's why I, I sort of was praising the score for this film because of its sparsity. It's not controlling you in that way. I mean, if you yeah. compare the score in this film to Inuritu's previous film, Birdman, which is a drum score, which oh, yeah. is like constant sound. It's it's very different in the way that it's sort of driving your emotions. Um, and I suppose in some ways that's a good thing because, you know, it's telling you how you're supposed to be feeling, um, which, which you know, uh, sometimes I'm happy to give into that if it's like a romantic film and there's a big sweeping score and it's like, okay, fine, I feel I'm allowing myself to cry at this moment. But sometimes I get really angry. Um, Oppenheimer is a really good example because... I was watching that film and I was feeling like the sound and the, the, the um, during the Trinity test sequence, it was really sort of tense. I was thinking, I don't want this to make me feel this way because it's manipulating me to have a feeling about something that I already sort of have a sense of as yeah. being like, this is a bad thing. And it's like manipulating me in that way. Um, so yeah, it's interesting you saying that about horror because horror is obviously a genre where you need to be manipulated because yeah. if you don't yeah. get that level of manipulation you're not going to be scared um i think it just depends on the subject matter of 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 the film um i mean in the revenant's case it's it's so interesting watching it again this time because the 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 idea is that we're with this perspective these people who are evil and doing very very evil things um and sort of my love of nature and animals and these are people who who destroy that and we're watching this sort of that tranquility that we talked about about at the start of the film even though there's a, a sense of something being off there are moments of tranquility in this film and then there those brutal attacks are so visceral you really feel them in yourself that you feel like the earth is being upturned in this way and i 
Mm. I found that I find that very upsetting. I think this is a very upsetting film about the the frontier and um I suppose it's a more grown up version of something like Pocahontas <laughs> in, that, in that respect. I mean <laughs> the, 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 the other films. <laughs> well that made me think of um Terence Mannix films and The New World in particular, right, which yeah. does a, has a very similar plot. And Lebetsky also shot that film. So it 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 would make an excellent double bill about this kind of taking how you create beauty and tranquility with both the cinematography and the sound design, and then how you manipulate that and twist it and turn it into something horrifying to create, to, to show sort of the brutality of colonialism. Pro- yeah. The problem is, though, if there's no manipulation, there's a, there's a potential issue that some audiences might watch a film mm. and it kind of flatline. Oh, because, oh no! You know, absolutely. I'm. I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that it, it varies in the films. Whereas in this one, yeah. I feel like I feel like there is that. It's not. It's not a heavy-handed form of manipulation. Is what mm-hmm. I mean. It's like this. It's t- it's showing this brutality, um, mm-hmm. which is which I think is perhaps the strongest element of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it also shows like some some like I don't think it's just just about colonialism. I think there's other elements of it as well. Like for example, I mean Leonardo's uh, character, for example obviously had a child with a Native American person. So I think it's quite, I think it's actually got a lot of gray areas in it. I think it shows that, um, I mean, in that example, for example, he reveres his dead wife, you know, she's constantly coming back to him um, in visions. And um, obviously when he loses his son as well, it's a very painful experience. And then, for example, like at the end, when him and Tom Hardy's character are fighting, there's something that Tom Hardy's character says to him. And um, I think, I think it says a lot about, how men deal with problems differently like all the characters like for example Mm. tom hardy's character is quite manipulative and sort of conniving whereas leonardo's character is quite um sort of lives by his principles and then at the end when the two are fighting tom hardy says something to him like he's trying to like again manipulate and he goes something along the lines of oh you know i didn't know what to do he was screaming i had to do it and he's trying to just you know sort of not face up to the the fight that he's got to have and then leonardo's like you know doesn't doesn't believe him and then you see the switch in uh tom hardy's face where he goes from trying to manipulate realizing it's not going to work to another tactic which is he then tries to aggravate leonardo's character more to then get the upper hand so he says something like well, if you would have, what he says, I can't remember the exact script, so I don't want to misquote it, but he says something like, um, if you would have actually raised a man instead of a boy or something, you know, he would have had a chance. And then that's when he loses it. So I think it it actually, yeah. t- the, the story's not necessarily, I don't, I, I didn't get like anything about colonial uh, colonialism from it, apart from the scenes where you see the Native Americans getting raided. I actually saw it more as about um, the individual characters, like um, mm. yeah, like that struggle between, I guess, the manipulator and the the hero, and sort of how that plays out. And then, is he going to win or is he going to lose? And I think it was for me, it was more about that. But that this is the beauty of it; yeah. you get to see it from different mm. different perspectives. I think the trappers, you know, and the American frontier is a very interesting period of history. Um, we we actually worked on a film recently from the same time period with similar characters french characters um a lot of people don't know that you know at that time a lot of the trappers were french um mm, something yeah. we don't talk about a lot we don't talk a lot about french colonialism and um there was in north america that was massive you know right mm. down the central part of canada all the way down you know to where modern day louisiana was french territory yeah. for 
quite a long period of time. I think um, I think to some audiences who are maybe not as, um, I don't want to say not as educated, but just not as interested in that or sure. never looked into it, might be surprised by that when they watch this film, when they hear the French accents and stuff like that from the trappers. Mm. That's really interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, I suppose the other thing that that made me think of that I did want to mention um, in relation to sound is how hard I find it to understand what anyone is saying in this film. Yes, um, <laughs> I was going to bring up. I was going to bring so up. So I, I was. Actually, I, I was really grateful to be able to watch it with subtitles this right. time because yeah. I suddenly knew what the dialogue was. Um, because Tom, I mean, this is an issue of Tom Hardy in in general is like, is the mumbling yeah. and the way that that's mixed, especially when you ha you do have a lot of sound as well. It it can just mean, and I don't know if that's just me. And my because I generally find audio processing very hard. I watch most films with subtitles, and I um, would choose to go to a subtitled screening um, over one that wasn't. It's why I watch a lot of films not in English because you can guarantee at the cinema that they will have subtitles. Because <laughs> um, even sometimes when they advertise a subtitled screening, uh, a multiplex, they forget to show that DCP. But anyway, uh, that's a different issue. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I was wondering about that because how do you? How do you fix that problem? Um, and is it something in this film? I mean, David, you just said that you also struggled with the, with processing yeah. the, the audio in this film. I, 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 in recent years, I've found myself putting subtitles on films more often. And and it's funny, isn't it? Because there's a certain almost like a sh almost like a shame in doing that. Like, um, yeah. because it's like, oh, can you, can you not hear it properly? But and I think it is to do with partly to do with me getting a bit older, probably, and my hearing maybe starting to slide away. I don't know. Um, and uh, but also, I do think that there is a, maybe a bit of a trend in like mumbly dialogue. And sometimes it's just just put the subtitles on, and it just makes the experience better for everyone. I mean, Tom Hardy. I, I kind of love Tom Hardy in many ways. I think he's kind of kind of wonderful, but his performances are always um, and that seems to be his shtick. And I had this exact question written down here for you, Alex, as to whether you, like you've ever had to deal deal with a, a mumbly actor in in a in a mix, and and how you how you address that. How do you how do, is there any specific tricks or t tips that you have in terms of like how to deal with something like that? Every single day, like <laughs> <Right>. unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I've heard that traditionally, or I guess it's common knowledge that traditionally actors were were trained to project the voice, yeah. um, it, regardless of film, theatre or whatever the background might be. And for some reason, I think it's because we now know a lot more about the acting process because there's been decades and decades of, you know, TV interviews with actors and we, we now follow them on Instagram. We know how it all works. We know they have acting coaches, you know, personal trainers, blah, 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 blah. So we're getting into this sort of thing where actors are not just acting, I guess, off instinct and professional training. They're sort of also trying to be inspired by how the Hollywood people do it. Yeah. And I think when they start like going a bit out there, a bit method, you know, a bit mm. weird, like a, a famous example, Heath Ledger um, as Joker, you know, that was one of the most yeah. famous examples where we all heard about his process publicly. Um, I think people are picking up the idea that, oh, well, my job as an actor, I just need to turn up. I just need to give it my all and get fully immersed into the character. That is a big part of your job, but another part of it is the technical part. You know, you still have to stand in a certain place and you still have to project your voice in a certain way. But I think mm. there's a little bit of an arrogance around that now sometimes where actors just think, well, my performance is my performance. It's your job to capture it. And it's right. like, it is 
the sound people's job to capture it and the camera people. Uh, but it is still your responsibility to actually let that performance exist. You know, it's like imagine if it wasn't about the sound, if it was about the way they looked and they just weren't looking enough a certain yeah. way like they didn't fulfill the director's vision it wouldn't be accepted so it shouldn't be accepted in sound so yeah mumbling has become and is becoming a much more serious issue as the mm. years go on particularly because now there's multi-camera shoots as well so you have to be further away with microphones and so on that's also had a big effect on it um but with this mumbly dialogue the problem you have is you just think well the instinct is just turn it up the problem you have is when you turn up mumbling dialogue, you get a lot more of the chest part of the human voice. So right. obviously we speak from, you know, we have our chest voice and we have our head voice that comes, you know, through the nose as well. Um, and if you're whispering, you know, like this, like really quietly, I'm really only talking from the chest voice. The chest right. voice has far less um, of the frequencies that we associate with hearing clear dialogue. So therefore, you turn it up, it will in fact become louder, but you'll be turning up more of the, let's say a percentage of the chest voice, you'll be turning it up more. So yes, you'll have the whispering at the same level as the rest of the dialogue, but now it will be far more chesty than the rest of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So you then have to use equalizers to cut it out. And basically you're trying to m fix a really unideal issue. Yeah you know mm. um sometimes it's okay other times it's not the worst situation is when someone whispers and they're also in an environment where the audio could not be captured perfectly well for whatever reason it might be reverberant it might be noisy um they're the worst situations to get whispering in because you, you're going to really struggle for the clarity then um because you have to bring that that up which then brings the noise level up yeah which you then have to try and remove the noise so you're just constantly having to carve away at that voice to try and make it clear it, it is a serious problem in our industry at the moment um and it has been for for quite a while so yeah that this is probably what happened here you know tom hardy i think with him it's a mixture of sometimes not projecting but sometimes he just doesn't care if his accent is clear mm. I, yeah, I, I always think it should be about the audience personally with any part of filmmaking. It should be about what the audience gets from it. So if I, I mean, I'm not an actor, but if I was an actor, I would be thinking like, I want people to hear like my performance. I want them to know what I'm saying and know what I'm trying to put across, not just a load of mumbling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I often yeah. feel like I can still tell the difference between a film actor and a theatre actor, you know, or a theatre actor doing a film part. Like I can mm. tell, you can almost tell because they've got that diction and that projection just mm. naturally as part of their performance. Absolutely. And so you, you just see it and hear it. Um, whereas people who are, yeah, these sort of filmy method actors are more inclined yeah. to use the chest voice, which is interesting. I've never heard that term before. That's a really, mm. yeah, fascinating one. No, yeah. it's definitely it's definitely more more recent films yeah. that I find harder to process yeah in terms of the audio uh, in terms of the the spoken dialogue rather than if i watch something from like the 1940s be it british or american the diction is cut glass it's absolutely yeah. perfect absolute perfection so there's there's no issue with understanding um whereas here's the more recent films where, the, where that where that's proven a problem for me um the issue of course with deciding whether or not to put the subtitles on is that some people find the subtitles very distracting um yeah. and and that that can be um for, for a lot of neurodivergent people that can be a real problem so you can't just sort of say oh yeah we need to put the subtitles on every relaxed screening because it doesn't 
the work, it will put some people off um, and it doesn't actually make it, it doesn't make it as accessible as a lot of people seem to think. Just putting yeah. subtitles on everything will be, especially um, for people who are dyslexic, it can be really, um, really distressing. But yeah, no, it's good to, to talk about that. Thank you. Really fascinating. Right. Well, okay. We have uh, come up to an hour's worth of recording, so I think we probably should uh, wrap things up there. But I thought that was a really fascinating discussion and um, really interesting to talk uh, about these things in detail. Um, And great to have you on, Alex, to be able to tell us about these things. You explain things in such a clear way, actually. It's made me understand sound design (laughs) just suddenly, which is really great. Um, Absolutely. Wonderful. yeah. So thanks. I mean, do you have any final things you'd you'd like to say, Alex? Um, uh, uh, you mentioned before about the training that your three four or four audio do. Is there any way in which people who are listening might, if they're interested in getting getting training or getting involved in that, what's the best route to get to that? So if you head over to our website, we've got um, a section on the main page called education. And if you click through to that, you can set up a discovery call with our team where we'll talk you through the the process of uh, of learning and um and sort of what it what it leads to uh, we actually have a very high success rate with our students in terms of finding them employment so mm-hmm. on our last cohort half of our students were in employment in specifically sound before the course had even ended oh, so wow. we, we provide That's a one to one mentorship aspect in it as well which is really just geared to helping you get a job or helping you work freelance in sound um we really believe in not just teaching the craft but also teaching the business and so on and so forth the the final closing thing i'd like to say is for anyone listening the film industry is a great place for people with autism Mm. it's a place where you can um explore your your way of uh, seeing the world and work with other like-minded people and um it's it is genuinely it's a dream to be working in in this industry for me because i think with all of the ways that my brain fires off and i think a lot of other people's brain fires off in relation to stimuli around us i think being able to work in an environment where that is a benefit and not a hindrance to others is is really good so i would encourage anybody to pursue the creative industries who who are from that background if you have a particular skill that you would like to um you'd like to explore well, that's wonderful. What a uh, what a really lovely way to uh, to round this episode off, and I would absolutely echo that as well. You know, I think the more we discuss things on this podcast, the more it becomes clear that 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 the world of film is 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 very rich for uh, for autistic people as viewers, as workers, as directors, as creatives, and so on and so forth. So that's brilliant. So yeah, I, I guess I'll just say thank you very much, uh, Alex, for for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, um, and thanks for suggesting the Revenant, which was really interesting to go back to. So thank you very much for that thank you and for having me guys no problem whatsoever and again thanks to Lillian as always for being here and for providing your amazing thoughts <laughs> um so thank you Lillian thank you. <laughs> amazing thoughts I made it sound really sarcastic then didn't I sorry <laughs> you did it's fine it's fine it's not I, what I, meant. Meant. <laughs> I just couldn't think of the right thought anyway I'm going to leave it there okay thank you very much um and thanks dear listener for listening and we'll see you again very soon goodbye you have been listening to the autism through cinema podcast brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary, University of London. Our thanks to 344 Audio for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Many thanks for tuning in.